Welcome back to Cerebravore. My name is Jason, the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I just want to give you a quick intro to this bonus episode. We're going to answer some phone calls, and we open up mid-discussion talking about a controversy that's occurred over a couple Anchor podcasts lately. Reference, is Conan a hero? And specifically his actions in stories like A Frost Giant's Daughter and Red Nails towards the fairer gender. So, I will leave you to it. No sunlight or Seeds of pain and Does it talk? Does it know how? Does it bottle? Does it meow? Let on the street the Defending in um, the Frost Giant's daughter that Conan was under a spell, which, granted, okay, so and and that's fine in that story, but that doesn't negate all the other times Conan's rapey and throughout yeah. the literature, right? And, and well, so that's and I, th- why I think the red nails. Bigger thing is, rapiness is rapiness, whether it's magically induced or not. I mean that you, you would. That without people well, and, would be uncomfortable and, with that today if someone wrote that well, as a new story today. Well, and the, the idea well, but, of but stories of mind under, control and those kind of things are written today, right? Well, yeah. but but yeah. I do think that well, and Frostshine's daughter in particular. I mean, Conan is. I mean, it, it's kind of. A, I would say that there's definitely a spell, especially on Conan, under like the first part. But after he kills the giants, is he still ensorcelled by? The See, I was I was well, read that he, question, he was just right? he had just gone into a berserker rage. Yeah, my thought is that he's he's not really ensorcelled anymore. He's just you know pissed off and and is kind of rapey, and that that's just kind of you know the nature of Conan and something that you sort of have to accept if you're going to enjoy that. And I think you can still enjoy the the books plenty or the stories plenty with it in mind that Conan has some issues. And and to be fair to Robert Howard, I think, A, we all can recognize that Robert Howard, I mean, pretty clearly had some serious issues of his own and was writing in the 30s. And that's a thing, too. And also that I think Robert Howard is a lot more um, subtle than a lot of people give him credit for about a number of those issues in his stories that he... um, definitely empathizes with Conan, but also, I mean, I think one of the big reasons why Conan's kind of interior darkness or depression or stuff like that comes across has to do with that kind of feeling yeah. that, that, you know, Conan, right. Part of what Robert E. Howard is sort of getting at has to do with the, you know, the struggle between sort of civilized life and this kind of ideal of barbarism. And that that's a major kind of, I mean, he t- sides with the barbarian most of the time, but he also, I think is, in the actual literature, a lot more kind of fair, excuse me, in his portrayal than people sometimes give him credit for. That he, he kind of recognizes that, like, you can't actually have a world that's all Conans, right? Like that that sort of world won't function, basically, right? Like having Conan be the king of Aquilonia is great to pull Aquilonia back from the brink, but having like an entire kingdom of Conans, you end up with a place like Samaria where basically nothing ever gets done, right? right? And uh, and a hundred percent the idea that you, you know Conan can be the hero, the protagonist of the story and, and do heroic things and not be a role model. Like you, you don't need to base your whole life on Conan. And, oh, absolutely. And well, I mean, in the though, same right? way that, you know, you look at like, especially, I mean, 
I, I say Sean Connery, John, James Bond, but all of the James Bonds have some pretty serious. Oh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and sometimes they do do some of the kind of commentary. Well, like in, isn't it in Skyfall when he gets onto the the lady, Daniel Craig in Skyfall and he goes onto Lady's boat and then he like sneaks into the shower with her and you're like, okay, so, but she was like, like 10 minutes ago in the movie, she was talking about being like a child sex slave, right? Like this is pretty fucked up when you get down to it. And I mean, I think that's part of the point is that we're, you know, it's sort of a commentary on the idea of James Bond as, you know, recognizing that he's kind of a sexual predator at times, but you can also, you know, appreciate the James Bond films without necessarily being like, oh yeah, I want to be like James Bond and treat women the way he treats them. Right. That there's. Well, yeah. It's that balance thing. And it's like, and Carl mentioned toxic masculinity. I don't know. We, we had to cut out a little bit of this conversation. Oh, by the way, you're listening to Cerebrivore. I'm mm-hmm. Jason. There's RPG broadcast. We have Carl of the Geomologist Presents, BJ of uh, Arcane Alienist, and I shouldn't be drinking so much. And of course, you just heard talking Arlen of, um, well, I have live from Helm's Wasteland. But, th- you know, we talk about toxic masculinity, but, you know, in these stories in certain times, you, you know, that's what society needed. It's not what society needs today per se, right? But it's one of those things. There are certain times in history you don't yeah, necessarily like, like, like it, uh, but, but you, you need that strong figure to step forward that's not, and every human's flawed and every human what's has the, problems. What's the movie with Jack Nicholson where he's like, you want the the bad guy on the wall or something, right? It's a, yeah, yeah. He gives the speech yeah. about like, mm-hmm. yes, I mean, obviously, right? He basically says like, yes, my my soldiers are not necessarily like the most ethical people, but you want that in soldiers, right? Because that's what makes them good at fighting. And I think there is a, a truth to that. And that I think is one of the big things that sort of the Conan stories get at is this idea of the, the not necessarily necessity, but the, the kind of um, role of the, I mean, Conan as a character who doesn't necessarily really belong anywhere very much and clearly has some pretty serious deep-seated issues in himself and is you know really unquestionably I think even if you're kind of willing to overlook some of the kind of sexual stuff he is he's really like pretty aggressively right like Tower the Elephant basically starts with him starting a bar fight and killing a dude for insulting him right like and I get that it's you know in the the slave dens of Zamora or wherever but still it's, uh, you know, I think I think we're meant to understand pretty clearly that Conan is not what everyone should kind of live up to, but is a sort of, you know, important figure within the nature of this world. Right. And, and like you mentioned, you have that whole the decadent civilization, and that was a huge thing. And the mm-hmm. idea of the barbarians against civilization and like you say, Howard identified the barbarian because of. But, you know how civilizations decay and and which we see mm-hmm. you know there is a real precedent for that but uh carl you right i think I, yeah i know we talk about toxic masculinity and i'm sure there might be people who's like oh you're you're attacking the masculine I- ideal whatever it might be but i i don't so toxic masculinity to me is not like we you know we want men and women to be strong we want men both mentally and physically but it's when they use that strength as a power trip and exploit or hurt others. I think that's where it becomes toxic, right? We're not mm-hmm. saying, you know, hey, you know, work out and look great and have your six pack and abs and be super strong and, you know, influence others in a positive way. But, uh, you know, don't 
you don't be rapey, I guess. Right. <laughs> well, don't, or to or bully, talk in for a second, or, I think or a bully uh, or a bully, yeah, right? Or yeah. beat people, go beat people up. Right. Well, and, and I think a really good kind of example of sort of the opposite phenomenon, um, Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings books is a little bit of a different character in the movies. Um, but there are some, especially I think in the movies, there's some great sequences that really show off sort of the opposite of that, right? Aragorn saying goodbye to Boromir and kissing him on the forehead is basically like my example of this is what like the opposite of toxic masculinity is. Like these are two men who are both strong characters and who are, you know, fighters for their people and, you know, believe in opposing evil and all that sort of stuff. And also are willing to have this kind of emotional connection with each other and with the world around them that is really healthy. Yeah, definitely. Okay. We had a minor glitch there. Sorry about that folks, but we're back. And now, We've got some phone calls. Um, sorry about th- that previous. So there have been talks on various podcasts about Conan and, you know, toxic masculinity and this and that. And, and, and so we had that discussion. We figured we'd share that little discussion we had with you. That's what we opened the show with there. But we're going to switch gears. And we've got calls from the Pink Phantom, who has her own podcast, Phantom Thoughts, which I highly recommend. Great, great podcast. But the Pink Phantom left, left us some calls about some previous episodes. So I'm going to play those now. Let's see, I'm sh- and I am sharing sound, so you should be able to hear this. Hey, the Pink Phantom here. I just want to say, I don't think it's fudging the monster stats. It's tailoring the creature to your world. Because all creatures are unique in their own way, in every world in the multiverse, and they should be treated as such. I don't remember the exact comment that that brought that out, or which show, but I think that's a great point. Thoughts on that? As far as if you're adjusting monster stats from, you know, just what's in the book. Obviously, if you're changing them on the fly, then maybe we we start getting to the fudging thing, right? Oh, the party's weak, so I'm going to throw a one-hit die you know, Chimera against, I should pick a monster I can pronounce, a a, a one-hit die cockatrice against them or whatever, right? But if you adjust it before the adventure starts, I don't personally see any issue with that, with adjusting monsters from what's in the book. Uh, What are your guys' thoughts on that, on adjusting monsters and throwing something, you know, unique against the players? So I actually, I, I agree with you, Jason. I think for me, the big distinction has to do with um changing the monster like on the fly live as a response to conditions of the adventure or whatever else versus changing the monster as a kind of set element of like the difference between your world and other worlds right maybe maybe in your setting orcs are one hit die creatures instead of two hit die creatures all that sort of stuff but i think that's different than being like oh the party's weak so these orcs are going to be one hit die creatures sort of thing um I also think, so I actually, I like the idea of tinkering with um, monster stats, especially to use kind of, you know, often you can kind of take different elements from other monsters. And it depends a lot on which sort of game you're playing, right? Different games that have more like sort of special abilities for, for both player characters and for enemies. Often you can, you know, like 
grab a special ability from a different type of monster and put it on uh, another monster and create something that's kind of like an, an interesting, weird, um, slightly different, but unique, something that seems to have some fit within the structure of the game, I guess, as designed, but also is something kind of special and unique, right? Like a, I can't think of a good example. The only example I can think of right now is like an orc that has like a, a spit acid attack. And I don't know why that came up, but who knows? Um, oh. But I, I also, I think there's something cool that you could do depending on the game. Like I know that there are um, rune quest adventures where like every single monster um, that the characters are expected to fight is like statted out fully with unique like rolled stats, like roll 3d6 for the different attributes and they have different kind of base things. Um, obviously that gets a lot harder if you're using a lot of different monsters, unless you're like, maybe if you do it on like a BTT or something and set up a, 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 a thing to just roll everybody's stats really quickly. But I think that actually, I think would be a really cool idea to have, you know, especially if you're playing a game where you, uh, you know, are fighting less total enemies and you're kind of spending more time with each particular enemy or like in a maybe even in like a swashbuckling game not for like the mooks but for like a an actual kind of big bad type that you have like you know here's the sort of like maybe like a template that you apply but then you do all sorts of tweaking to make them feel like a, a really unique monster and i think that's a cool thing i i, I think that's there. now carl bj have either you played fourth forty my understanding is Fourie had something like that. I did that all the time in Fourie when I when I ran for. I just made adjusted monsters, blended them together, swapped abilities out. Uh, particularly, maybe not for your run of the mill minions, but particularly for like boss monsters and um, stuff like that. And Fourie made it very easy to, to to just reskin stuff or or do things like that because of the way they constructed monsters and the way they built encounters. Well, and there's, uh, I'm also thinking there's, I don't know how much in kind of uh, vanilla 5e, but certainly in Adventures in Middle-Earth, I know they've got a whole, there's sort of a, a bestiary section of the Lore Master's Guide that's all of the kind of classic Tolkien monsters, but then they also have a section that's all just like special things you can add to create a, a special, unique badass particular enemy right so that hopefully you run into a lot of these kind of enemies that have a little bit of something different right so maybe it's a you know it's a, a particular orc boss and he has an extra hit die and an extra you know like plus two damage or something like that to make him feel a little bit different than just you're you know pulling the templates out of the book and it's the same orc boss that you fight every time right the other thing i think is something to be mindful with this is if we don't use the monsters' names that that are in the monster manual or in the you know the best tree for that game, and we don't put those monster names on the if we're using a VTT, we don't have Orc One, Orc Two. That way, if they have these different abilities, you're describing it to them, but you're not. That way, the that I think would help a little bit with the players potentially feeling cheated. Like, oh well, that's not right because trolls are vulnerable to fire, and fire is not hurting this one. Well, if you never use the word troll. And, you, you know, and you've addressed it ahead of time, then it's not real. You know what I mean? If you have a troll that's this one's vulnerable to ice or something. Right. But but I think if you use the name of the that they're used to, 
and it doesn't necessarily match depending on the players i think you you might get more resistance i don't know carl thoughts on that uh you might but i mean hey if it looks like a troll describe it as a troll and if they make that mistake well then they'll get chopped down right or injured i mean but i I think what's interesting is how how the various editions like adjust like your non-bog standard um npc right so so i feel like in bx and ad and d you would add like class levels and then they redid this again in 3.5 3.5 you add class levels to a monster to make it not your bog standard cobalt goblin you give them you know goblin alchemist cobalt wizard what sorcerer whatever um and you could do that and i see that like in in say lost city that we're running through where uh, now they're giving this like uh, npc like some levels in a class and it, they look all the same but this one has particular skills right that are better than the other ones around them in second edition and i think in fourth and fifth um, I mean, BJ is maybe a better historian at this if you can comment, but I feel like they added, they put roles onto the NPCs. So then like, you know, you have like a cobalt, your regular cobalt, but then you have like a cobalt archer, a cobalt spellcaster, a cobalt priest, right? And they have like actually statted out. I know for sure in 5e they do this, right? You have like your fog standard hobgoblin and then the hobgoblin captain, right? He's got more hit dice, more abilities, et cetera, right? And they did that for sure in 4E, I feel like, where they reintroduced it. But, you know, I think the 5E harkens back to second edition where you really didn't add, you just had, like, you know, the the Marid, right? Bog standard Marid, for example. And then the Marid Prince, you had, was a total different stat block and had many different abilities, right? So I think second edition had that, um, whereas, you know, some of these other editions, they would just add classes uh, to a monster, or interchange its abilities, which I think is pretty cool. And I think going back to, you know, Pink Phantom's original question, you know, uh, should you, does a monster change? Do you fudge things? I think it depends on the drama, right? I think many of us probably just use like the stat block. This is how many hit points a creature has, especially in these later editions where they kind of take the average hit points of the, of the monster. But then older editions, you know, you could roll the hit dice really quickly and then. You, you, you have a varied amount of, of hit points among the various type of creatures, which is kind of cool, right? But I mean, sometimes, so I know for me, I mean, you, you want to, it depends on the, the drama that you want, honestly. Like I say, I know a lot of times this probably happened where you, the, the PCs attack a creature and they do enough damage to leave it at one hit point. And I guess depending on the vibe of the fight, you either want to keep that mob alive and for another round or just, you know, just let it be dead, right? I mean, just that's that's the way I would see that. It's like just depends on the drama of, that you want to put forth in the in the game. Yeah, just I'm going to throw it to Arlen. He's got a comment here, but really quickly, I know what I do now. I'll determine before the game, though. There are some games I'll determine ahead of time. This creature is going to take one hit to kill this, you know, in the mob, or this one's going to take two hits to kill, and and I'll do that as opposed to counting hit points. But I'll determine that before the game, not on the fly. But I'll do that sometimes for expediency. But go, go ahead, Arnold. Well, I, I've done that also. The idea of like, a, you know, especially with with certain monsters where it's like, you know, right, like with stormtroopers, right? And maybe you don't necessarily kill them in one hit, but you kind of take them out of the fight sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? You shoot the stormtrooper once and maybe they're not dead, but they're, you know, down and out. Or with um, one hit die creature or with a, a, like a one hit point creature, I think often for me, that's a sign of even if you don't kill it, that's the point where it, like that creature knows that it's it's almost gone. So you have that one 
try to do its best to back off. So it's not necessarily contributing to the fight much anymore, even if it's not actually dead, which I think is kind of a good uh, middle point almost, right? You don't necessarily say like, ah, oh, that one hit point doesn't matter. Um, but also it's not right. Especially right. Like a frontline sword and board NPC fighter that's down to one hit point that backs away while well, suddenly they're not really contributing damage or soaking up hits or anything like that to the fight. So it's, you know, not quite dead, but almost as good as at least until something changes. Um, I was also going to say, Carl, I really liked your uh, point talking about like the, you know, describing something as a, a troll that is maybe not, or similar to a troll, but is maybe not a troll. Um, obviously in uh, real world ecology, we see kind of things like that at times, the um, coral snake and and the, the king snake or milk snake, right? The red on yellow killifella, red on black friend of Jack, I think is the, the phrase that I've heard where, right? Because one version is venomous and the other, right? Coral snakes are, are highly venomous. But um, the other type of snakes that have a very similar banding pattern, but not quite the same, um, are not venomous. And I think that could be a cool thing to have in your campaign world, right? The idea that maybe there are, you know, especially certain types of monsters where there's like a, a sort of ecological niche for um, a creature that kind of looks similar to or appears similar to or mimics a much more deadly monster and maybe it maybe even uses that to like hunter stuff right like a like a a, re, a true dragon and like a false dragon or something well yeah that's in D &D. you have yeah. you have a fit you have the gas spores that look like beholders you have pseudo undead that look like yeah undead. yeah so, there's some of the that pseudo and dead are kind of silly but i think it, i think it would be a cool i think it's kind of a, a neat way to um, add some sense. And, and, and I think also from the perspective of playing, it's often a good way to kind of get your um, players really involved in the world, right? If they have to pay close attention to those details, right? The, the equivalent of, you know, checking the, the stripes on the snake, right? That if you're like, okay, so there's one type of creature that sort of looks like a troll, but it only has one hit die. And there's this one other type of creature that looks a lot like a troll and it has six hit dice and they regenerate you're going to pay close attention when you get to something that looks sort of like a troll to try to decide whether which one that is, because it's important. Right. And that yeah. in your modern games that have skills in there, and, and you can do this in other ways in old games don't have skill systems, but they can use their various skills, you know, whether it's history monsters, history arcana, you know, I don't know, lo local knowledge, lore skills, whatever you have there. They could use those skills to try to identify a creature. You know, when they look at it, they can roll to see if they can identify it. So they know that, yes, I do identify that as a poisonous snake. And obviously, a ranger is going to be more adept at doing that than, say, a thief that just grew up in the city. Or, you know, whatever. But ju just an idea. Anyhow, BJ? I was just going to say, um, I was going to bring something back. that I think what Big Phantom's original point was, was about tailoring the monster stats during the encounter to change the tone of the encounter after the encounter has started. I think that's what he was getting kind of, kind of jokingly getting at. Right? Um, interesting debate with someone online a couple of years ago about that, where, where I think Matt Colville had, had posted a, a video in, in defense of dice, fudging dice. And this was a guy's response. And I guess where we're, we were kind of having a disagreement is I was saying, well, 
he was saying just to adjust their hit points or their armor class. You know, if the party's really struggling and, and it's like, well, after the encounter has started, what's the difference between fudging their stats and fudging your die rolls once the counter has started in, in earnest? Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying, really. And most of the players I know who are really, 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 really livid about the DM fudging dice are also extremely picky about not, you know, that I don't think they would be any happy knowing they would feel like their agency had been taken away if they found out, you know, halfway through that fight, I just changed its armor class. You guys hadn't figured out what its armor class was yet, so I just knocked a couple of points off. Um, but we, we, I think practically we know whether it's dice fudging or, or changing monster stats on the fly is sometimes we, 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 we just miss – we miss, we 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 un- underestimate overmiss when we miscalculate as DMs what that encounter what role that encounter is supposed to play and this was designed as a, a time waste or an inter- or a resource drain. It really wasn't supposed to be the kind of thing where they got they go oh, no we got to you know we're going to die now and you just overshot. So what do you do? Do you fudge dice? Do you change the stats? Do you say okay the, he, you smacked him hard? He didn't want to fight anymore. He's going to run. <laughs> I think morale checks are great for that in, in, in old school D and D, but you know as of kind of three on forward it's not an official rule and it's they tell you you can do it and the dm the, the dungeon master's guides for these new editions but they kind of don't give you that clear lined out procedure that you can just plug in it's kind of like well you figure it out on your own it's like well, what if i don't want to figure out one? what you're a professional game designer you tell me what you suggest right that brings us actually maybe to the perfect point for this next call from pink phantom which is titled pc reaction role so let, let's see what we get here. Hey, the Pink Phantom here. I just want to say I love the concept that Jules had of a what is essentially a reaction role for a PC, for her own PC. And while that's not something you would want to see uh, introduced by a DM or something or by a rule system that, that takes away that player agency, the idea that a player, as the concept of their character, would say, I'm going to have a reaction role to whether I'm going to talk to this person or help this person or attack this person. I just love it. Or it could be whether I run from this encounter or not, right? So that kind of feeds into to what you're saying, PJ. Yeah, I've had player a, a guy I play with quite a bit who'll do that sometimes with some of his characters, particularly if he's playing kind of a temperamental style. That's the current person's personality. He's like, ah, am I going to lose it and go in and just start a fight or not? And he'll 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 just roll it. Hi, I'm going to start a fight. Low, I'm not. And he just rolls the die when he thinks his character might be ambivalent about something. Yeah. Well, and there are. Go, go ahead. Uh, and there are some interesting um, kind of beyond just D&D. There's some interesting systems. I mean, some of them, I know that I, I assume that it's in groups. I know in hero system, there's like special disadvantages you can take that are sort of behavior based where it's like you know my character goes into a rage in specific situations on a specific role um things like that that's a little more kind of hard and fast um pendragon actually which it wouldn't be a cerebral episode with me if i didn't talk about pendragon um but pendragon uh one of the kind of core elements is that it has this paired trait system where basically there's a, a whole set of kind of personality traits um, and they're paired so that, you know, as you get more of one, you get less of the other, that sort of thing. Um, 
And there are um, specific kind of force rules. So for instance, like certain monsters will require a, a valorous check, which is basically like, you know, in order to charge in against a dragon, your character has to kind of, you know, get their courage up to do it because it's a dangerous thing to charge a dragon. Um, but even in a lot of other situations, you can, I think, use a lot of those traits the way I um, often, yeah, or hatred, Carl mentions, um, hatred and, and various passions in Pendragon can also kind of fit into that sort of thing. Um, in my games, often when I run uh, Pendragon or something Pendragon based, one of the kind of core things I do, I don't remember I think in different editions, they have kind of slightly different ways of wording it. Um, but in mine, your traits are basically your character's kind of first instincts, if that makes sense. So you don't, in most circumstances, you don't necessarily have to play alongside your character's traits. There are certain circumstances where you do, right? Basically in combat, if you fail a valorous role, you just don't have it in you to charge against this particular extra dangerous enemy because i feel like that is a situation where in in a sort of you know not necessarily in real life but in kind of verisimilitude world right you can imagine that sense of being you know so scared that you don't have any control over what you're doing that sort of thing is something that we are all not hopefully not too familiar with but probably can at least recognize the reality of that kind of experience um but in a lot of other situations you know for instance i will you know, sometimes have the player or sometimes just suggest to the player, right? You know, you're talking to an NPC. Why don't you, you know, roll suspicious or suspicious or trusting, depending on how your kind of innate feeling is, right? And to try to get a sense of kind of what your feeling is. And, you know, maybe if you roll trusting, they decide that they like you more because you trusted them. And maybe if you roll suspicious, you get a little insight into their motive because you're, you know, scrutinizing them as a way to kind of get into this idea that a, a player character like a, a real person has this kind of subconscious element, right? The way that we have all of the stuff that we do actively, but we also have, you know, um, behavioral tics and also have, you know, our kind of innate biases that many of us are not very good at noticing all of the different kind of elements that we are not necessarily as directly in control of all the time that kind of define elements of how we behave. And I think that's a, an interesting way to approach that sort of thing. And it, it really, in my mind, it can add so much to the kind of sense of the character being much more of like a real person when you embrace that element, especially if you end up with something where their role does something kind of uh, uncomfortable for the game is, is sort of the common thing, right? If you right, an NPC that is supposed to be a friend and you roll your like critical success on a suspicious check and suddenly it's a, you know, the player knows maybe if they're kind of metagaming or playing in sort of a more narrativist way, this is probably a helpful character, but my character is very suspicious of that. And I think that can create a really interesting moment of tension in the play um, where a, a really good character can, you know, similar to the way that like um, kind of noir, noir stories often have this element too, the kind of gap between the uh, sort of reader and writer's knowledge of the genre and the character's involvement in the genre that I think creates something really interesting. Yeah, I, no, I think those are great points, BJ. Uh, yeah, well, you just kind of said what I was going to lead in with is looking at the genre and the type of game you're playing. I mean, I think that comes down to session zero or having a discussion. What are the expectations? Because 
you know, D&D is a little free form in that regard is your character's motivations and decisions are your own unless you get hit by some kind of a magical effect that causes fear or, or panic or something like that. Um, but when you agree to play Pendragon, you're agreeing to play this, this romantic Arthurian genre where the, the passions of these people overwhelm them and dictate that they sometimes do fairly foolish and, and bad things. And that's just, that's a character in that kind of a story. You've got to agree from the beginning. Yeah. I'm going to play a kind of character where sometimes the dice cause my, my emotions to, to lead me to do something I wouldn't do if I otherwise. Mm-hmm. The same thing with Call of Cthulhu. If you're going to play Call of Cthulhu to be a superhero, that's a bad fit. I mean, when you go into Call of Cthulhu, I think you're going in on it. At some point, my character is going to get emotionally scarred, mm-hmm. maybe to the point that that's the end of their career. If they don't die, that's the end of their career because they're going to be in an asylum. That's just part of the fun of the genre. And you have to agree if, you know, if you agree to play those games, you, I think you have to agree to be part of the genre that's that's there. And D&D, sometimes you have to have a serious talk with players about, we're going to play with some tropes here. So some things you might take for granted in your career as a D&D player, maybe don't apply here because we're going for a specific mood or a specific feel for, for this. Well, and to, to mention Call of Cthulhu, I think that's one of the, one of the kind of core elements that I think can be difficult if you don't do a good job with Session Zero of Call of Cthulhu is that from a sort of, um, hesitate to say objective, but some from a sort of kind of classical uh, self-interested standpoint, um, investigating almost never actually makes any sense. I mean, there's some stories where there's like, you know, yeah, there's sort of world ending consequences. If we don't deal with this, it's not going to, um, solve things but especially in the ones that take i think that actually moves away from the kind of flavor of a lot of the lovecraft stories where generally the impetus is that the character has this you know desire to know more sort of thing um and that's i think a big genre buy-in from the players is that as as a player in a call of cthulhu game one of the core things that you're asked to do is to create a character that you are going to be attached to and that you're going to play and care about, but also are willing to embrace this idea that you're going to, you know, drive it like you stole it and and put the character deeper and deeper into the mystery, even though that's not what is good for the character, because that's what makes for a really interesting game. Right. And with Call of Cthulhu, you have to, if you get a player that's not okay with losing a little bit of agency when their character goes insane and playing along with whatever insanity is rolled or whatever, yeah, yeah. then you're going to have problems, right? It's yeah, just yeah, one definitely. of those things. I think Car- <laughs> or Go ahead, BJ. I would say, I think my sense is in early D&D, even if you just look at sort of the fact that the DM could say, now your alignment is switched, or they could, they, you had magic items that could change your alignment, there probably was an expectation that you just go along with this. Mm-hmm. You got hit by a curse, you got hit by a mind-altering effect, and you need to... In, in good faith, play their character that way. Um, but, but I think, I, as, as I heard someone say recently, that, you know, originally D&D, you had an avatar that played the world. You know, and, and somehow we've gotten to a point in a lot of modern gaming where character building is an artistic expression of your own ideas, as opposed to, I just need a token to move around this map and explore this dungeon. Mm-hmm. And, and, and really, I build, I'm building a character that will function in this fictional world so we can have the we can have a, an adventure game. Carl, why don't you go? Carl, yeah, you I'll go, go. I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and go. I yeah. thought I was getting called. Anyway, so um, 
so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, they had the, in the older D&D, they had like the reaction role, right? And then you see how you, you come across to the, uh, to the mobs or NPCs, right? And you don't always have to have a fight. And, um, so I think it was left up to like random chance in a way. And then you'd have to like roll with it. Even, even now that I'm looking, like we're looking through, I guess, I guess I'm bringing it up again, the lost city that we're playing, you know, and when the first instances of faction play and, um, and you have these various factions, but it's all left up to a die roll. Like you roll a die and if they, they either like you or they don't when they see, and then you have to kind of go with it. And I think, and it's interesting though, in, in later, in later editions, even when um, these things are presented, uh, it's really it's really a good study. Actually, I would recommend to our listeners if you ever get the Goodman Games products, the OAR products, because they always have the original, and then you can read their conversion of the fifth edition, and they really try to keep, like, the the in a way I would say the early AD and D Gonzo ness of what goes on, like these random rolls of what happens. Or like you walk into a corridor and then you're suddenly you're you save or you have a fear effect and now well like in AD in in D and D five now that gives you a disadvantage right to doing something and I think that not just with um, the OAR type of products or like the Watsi products like Ghost of Saltmarsh um, there are other, I think they're starting to embrace this idea that you're gonna you're gonna codify it a bit more this reaction to how uh, characters are reactions for characters right you see either like a charisma roll, if you fail your charisma save, then you're going to have a disadvantage on your interaction, persuasion, deception against this NPC. If you roll like a, a if you fail a wisdom save, then now you're a little fearful and you're at a disadvantage in interacting with this room, situation, mob, whatever. So I think, you know, the, I think 5e is trying to codify it a little more to try to force i don't know if it's force um maybe it's a too strong a word but encourage players to like act outside of their you know what they've conceived their character to be and they do they've done it with these kind of mechanics right and it's not like a a, a definite it's like a disadvantage right so it's it's not full on what used to happen maybe in the older type of games where it's like yes or no but it, you know it could be but you have you know it's a disadvantage that gives you like a effectively to minus five right so so you know it, it really it's a very interesting way of they're trying to bring this back or at least interpret like i say the goodman games oar stuff interpret this binary it happens or it doesn't into like there's a strong possibility this might happen and here's how we ease you into this way of thinking maybe right so so when and uh, no i think that's excellent the so carl's talking about the original adventures reincarnated series that that they're doing with um well they were doing tsr now they're getting into other things so they they read it into the borderlands the isle of dread uh expedition of the barrier peaks lost city castle amber and temple of elemental evil all great products and then now they're going moving on to other products some of the old judges the dark things. tower yeah it's yeah it's awesome. like dark tower yeah but highly yeah. highly recommended I will add another example that I think is kind of interesting, which is the way that the um, kind of, for lack of a better term, what is often called social combat works in something like Burning Wheel. Um, one of the things that the Burning Wheel book is very upfront about is basically the idea that um, the effects of these kind of social combat engagements, the, the debate and type things, 
um, are not something that you or the opponents are allowed to uh, renege on or ignore or anything like that. Um, when you put something into the pot, right, it's, it's basically, you know, you have to put something at stake in order to um, engage in, right, ante up to play the game sort of thing. Um, and part of the idea is that applies to the opponents too, right? That you you put what is at stake for your characters, the opponents, your opponents in the debate put what is at stake for their characters, and you're not allowed, right? If, if the opponents beat you in the debate, you have to do what comes out. Now, there are some kind of interesting um tinkering to that so one of the systems is that basically you know if for instance the it's based on the degrees of success total success for the the um situation that basically like the if the loser has not lost by very much i i don't remember exactly how it works basically they can kind of offer like a counter argument of like here we can have you know a little bit less of what you wanted originally um because we didn't lose by very much sort of thing and there's some kind of negotiating that goes on in that case of you know depending on how kind of thorough the success or failure is there's negotiating but part of the the point is that you know the players um are ultimately right at, at the core they're wagering their characters uh, agency over specific events in the universe, right? That if you um, go, you know, you have a debate with the Dark Lord and you say, you know, I want you to start stop being evil. And the Dark Lord says, I want you to be one of my Nazgul, right? That's what's at stake. And if you fail, you're going to be a Nazgul. And I think that's a, I, I think it's an interesting, because part of the point is you can always choose not to debate, but you can't choose to back out of the debate. And that's the big thing is that if, if you really want the Dark Lord to stop being a Dark Lord, you got to be prepared to wager all of that important stuff. And, and I think that's often where the, the drama comes in in that system is what you put at stake in those things is part of, because if you want a lot from the opponent, they're going to ask you to ante up for something big also. And that's why those situations are really so fascinating in play. Yeah. And I think uh, another game that does that um, is a song of ice and fire where you get into social combat and you, and that goes back to communication session zero. You know, if you're if you're going to engage in social combat against like someone, uh, an NPC called the Black Widow of Castle Rock, you know, you're going to be in for a bad time, right? So, and then you have to abide by the results of the. If you lose, then you kind of got to do what this person, in a way, has influenced you to do. You know, and, and that goes back to like the you know even in in D and D, if we roll it back to D and D then, you know, when, when a, a PC is charmed, you know, how do they, they have to, in good faith, act friendly towards the, the enemy that might have charmed them, right? Um, so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting comment and a tough thing to sell, but I think, I don't know if you need a, a new mechanic like reaction roles, because I think it's built into the system, I guess, to finally, for me at least, to answer Pink Phantom's question. Um, I think it's, it's there, and, uh, and you can tweak the system a little bit, you know, for example, I know a big thing that I want to try to tackle on my podcast at some point, and maybe one of you guys can join me, listeners or panelists, is in interrogation. How do you do interrogation? And I think there's some, you know, there's always this, you always run into this problem, you capture somebody, and then of course, a GM is going to play them very intractable, and you're not going to talk to them, but there's got to be a mechanic, because, you know, I, for example, I'm never going to be able to argue against, you know, someone who professionally is a debater or a professor or like a lawyer, 
against um, an NPC, I'm not going to win, right? Because I just don't have that capacity. So there has to be a way for someone who maybe on paper, their character is skilled to do that. So how do you tackle that? And so, all right. Okay. I think yeah, B BJ mentioned in the, in the chat here, sometimes players want their agency, but don't want the NPC to have it. And I think that's a hundred percent valid that, you, you know, and that's a, there's a balancing point in there. I, I, I think I that's think why uh, it, it, people will complain. You know, they'll say like Pathfinder and D and D modern D and D, especially and other games. Well, they're just combat games. Look at how much of the rules are devoted to combat versus how little are devoted to social interaction. But when you start to create a robust social interaction system, other than just maybe some skill checks that have DM defined outcomes, this is what you run into. It's like, okay, well, we can divide a, a very, you know, a more complicated way of, of engaging with to do interrogations and debates and persuasions and things like that. But you have to submit yourself as players to the same rules that the NPCs and monsters have to follow, which means right. what happens when now the king is now, you know, it, it's not magic, but he's effectively put a guess on you. You entered into this negotiation and now you have to do this. And if you try to get out of it, maybe we can, you know, consequences, but did we set out to play a game where now you're outlaws with the king's army is out looking for you? Or did we set out, <laughs> was that the game we set down to play? If that's okay, maybe that's one thing, but, you know, but I don't think that's why most people play necessarily. They kind of play for the, most the bog standard ad adventure and that you get, get, get off and left will when you just expect the people that inhabit the, the, the world your, your characters occupy. Well, they just roll over us and do whatever we want. You know, I'm not well, a murder hobo. I negotiate. That you... <laughs> well, well, it comes back right. to the whole henchmen and hirelings. Do, do, the, do, do the, you know, are, are they just automatons, the PC's point? Or you know, a GM's going to play them, and and every now and then the GM they're 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 going to say, "I'm not going to do that," <laughs> you know, or they get lazy and they you know they do something else. But you know, that's that balancing point of now in combat, you might give the the, the those henchmen to the PC to run, you know, for expediency. But out out of out of combat, really, I think like henchmen, hirelings, and stuff yeah. need to be done by the GM because they need to have personality or they don't I, need to, but it makes it a much richer game if they have personalities. And, and and I realized I made that mistake of not making that clear distinction when I had given people control of their, their retainers uh, just for, for expediency sake. But then I realized that this guy's using his retainer to scout ahead around three corners in the dungeon and the whole party can see it. It's like, no, I should have I should have taken off your control of that character when you decided to do that because you can't see what he sees. He's an NPC. He's gonna have to come back and tell you what he sees. You guys can't strategize off what an NPC sees 200 yards away. hundred percent, hundred percent. Another game does pretty good with the with the social stuff is Savage Worlds. They have they have pretty good rules built built in for that but we, we we do have a couple more calls here so okay any last i mean i i don't want to cut off cut off the conversation yeah. people have thoughts but when we're ready what will happen in the next one but i'd like to say well, if we have final thoughts on this i think i think one last thing for me is that as with a lot of things i think um in many games even if there are not necessarily like explicit rules for things that the players will come to um sort of recognize the way that the world is reacting to them and behave in a commensurate way, I guess, right? That like, like for instance, if the players get cheated by 
right? The players sign up to be mercenaries and they get cheated by their employer. That I think is an obvious case where the players are likely to stop taking um, the legal system of the setting particularly seriously. Or if, for instance, the players, right? If, if, if every time the players run into monsters, the monsters literally never run or surrender or anything like that. Well, your players are probably never going to run or surrender either because they don't think that's a part of the way the world works, if that makes sense, right? That Almost like that, I, I hesitate to say that the DM is sort of training the players to behave in these ways because I don't think that's a necessarily a, a completely fair way to put it. But I do think there is an element of, you know, the way that the world responds to the players will often come to um structure the way that the players respond to the world right that or to to use carl's example of an interrogation right if for instance every time the players try to get some information from an npc the npcs are totally hostile and never offer any information well most of the time in my experience what happens is that the players just stop interacting with npcs when they don't have to they're like why would i bother wasting time talking to these people they never give us any information anyway Right. Or if if your hirelings betray you from the, the very first hireling you get betrays you, that's going to kind of temper the PC's idea well, towards hiring. Yeah, or, or the right? classic, you take some enemy's prisoner and then as soon as your back is turned, they take their weapons back and try to stab you in the back. Well, no prisoners anymore in that campaign, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be, you know, as soon as if they try to surrender, we're just going to uh, break the Geneva Convention without even a second thought, right? Okay. So I guess but, you're but, saying, Arlen, that the GM has to play nice too. Yeah. I, well, and not even necessarily nice, but the GM has to be willing to embrace the idea that they need to play their characters in the way that they expect the players to play their characters is, is the way I would put it, right? That if if they expect the, for instance, if they expect the players to uphold their deals, the GM doesn't necessarily have to uphold every deal that a GM character makes, but they do need to kind of, I think, embrace the idea that the if if for instance you're playing a game where the rules are consistent in the world and not every game is like that right you could be playing right especially with some of like the uh uh player facing games i think about like powered by the apocalypse stuff that the characters that the players are playing have a fairly different way of interacting with the world than the gm characters do um but in a lot of i think trad games especially if you're playing a sort of sandboxy kind of realistic world game I think it is really important for the GM to embrace the idea that when they play a character in a particular way, the players are likely to also play their characters in that particular way. Yes, if the GM cheats at the riddle game, it's it's the sort of classic. I mean, it goes back to that sort of burning wheel thing, right? That if you if you put something on the table and then you want to take it away when you've lost. If you do that as the GM, the players are going to think that that's how this game is played also. And they'll probably stop putting anything on the table. Or if they put something on the table, they will be like, oh, I'll just take it away if I start losing. Right. The GM has to I think the GM has to in the same way, if the GM expects the players to be willing to ante up and, and you know, potentially lose something valuable, the GM has to play characters in a way that reflects that as well, is I yeah, guess I, what I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. You, you can have a henchman betray the characters but it can't be every henchman and yes. it shouldn't be the first henchman. Probably not the first one. <laughs> you, you know, one, every, every occasional thing is okay. You know, that's like rumors, right? Yeah. If, if you give rumors out, not every rumor is going to be true, but if and, every single rumor is false. Well, and the henchman thing, I think it's great if you have, you know, 
every once in a while, a player character henchman betrays the player characters, but also enemy henchmen will betray their employers in the same way, right? That there's mm -hmm. a sense that everybody who is doing this for money is probably, you know, probably has a price and probably isn't super interested in dying for their employer, not just because I think that's another thing that can be, um, as a player, particularly annoying is the sense of, oh, our mercenaries are um, totally disloyal bastards. But every time we run into an enemy mercenary company, they're like, yep, we're, uh, this is the hill we're dying on. We're going to take as many of you down with us. And it's like, that, that just doesn't feel very fun to play in a lot of ways. Right. Well, that, that is a good segue, actually, because the next call is about alignment language and how, you're how well you're going to stick to your employer. Alignment's going to play into that. And, and that's one thing that, act before I play this call, I don't know that we want to spend a lot of time talking about this, but that's something the, the straight up the BX reaction table doesn't take really take into account as much as alignment, but different, like a lawful good character is, is well, it's not fair to the reaction role because that's not what it's made for. But, but, but you, but I think alignment play should play into how characters react a lot. A lawful good character should be sticking forward with, um, the idea of honoring bargains and all that kind of thing, where you wouldn't expect a chaotic evil character to honor bargains, right? You, you, and, and and so I think that's going to play into it too, the character's alignments. But but let's play. Um, well, and, go and ahead, Arlen. Just yeah. for a second, I thought that's one of the things that I think is kind of interesting in um, certainly in some old school games. I remember discussion of right because in the D and D universe as written at least alignment is like a like a, a metaphysical reality right it's not just something that has to do with um kind of the way you feel on that particular day or something at least in the case of a lot of other like for instance like detect evil spells and one of the things that they um mention is that if you uh Right. If you cast like detect uh, alignment or detect evil or something like that on a henchman or a, a, a somebody, they'll be like, that's a real betrayal of my trust. And I think that's kind of an interesting element to bring in also is the, the sort of idea of, well, what happens what happens with alignment when it is that kind of actual metaphysical reality? And it also defines a lot of these relationships. Right. Which, again, leads us to the. So, so let's hear what. Um... And actually, there's there's two call. I'm going to play two of these calls back to back because the second call is a little bit of a. You'll see. So so I'm going to play these calls now. Pink Phantom here, uh, loving the talk on alignment languages. I've always had just kind of a vague concept in my head of maybe alignment languages could be not a specific language with its own words and dictions and pronunciations and everything, but more of a psychological mindset where the inflections as you speak, the uh, micro expressions on your face, you know, just hand gestures, you know, when people gesture with their hands when they talk, that the way you interpret those is influenced by what your alignment is, by the way you perceive the world. So people who perceive the world in the same way can communicate to one another using just regular words, common or whatever your common language is, and but people of their alignment will see the sort of underlying message that they're trying to get across, whereas those are different alignments simply won't because they can't. Think Phantom here. Listen, guys, I know we're trying to have a wide-ranging discussion and bring in a lot of ideas, but I, I think we need to draw the line at talking about ponies losing their cutie marks. 
I mean, people need to be able to sleep at night. What, what are you guys doing? I, I, I think you really need need to just take a breath sometimes before you talk. <laughs> just kidding, in case you couldn't tell. Okay, if you guys haven't listened to the Alignment Language episode, go back. That last comment obviously is geared towards Jules, the Jules from NZ who joined us for that. But I think the idea of this underlying, so it's the idea if you have gangs, you know, if two Crip members are talking to each other and you have somebody there that's not part of that gang culture, they're not going to pick up on all the subtext that's going on. And, and and arguably, if two sociopaths, psychopaths meet on the street, they might, and I'm, I'm using those terms wrong probably, but they might pick up on e- each other to some degree, right? I don't know. Um, BJ, we haven't heard from you for a minute, so I'm going to throw but it to you. He almost sounded like he was talking like it was like thieves camp, where there's a mm-hmm. certain yeah. certain way of saying when you make inflections, when you you add gestures, that it, it becomes a coded language that uses ordinary communication to, to do it, and it's just something in the way you do it. Or I think I can also it's a few steps removed, but I know if you know someone really well, like, like if you've been married for a long time, sometimes you can just have conversations with like nods and winks and, you know, uh, or, or, or if you've got friends where you're there inside jokes and you can just make a movie reference or something silly that one of your buddies said, and everybody knows what you're talking about. All you got to do is say a couple of words and everybody's like, Oh, that, that um, sort of makes sense. But at the same time, I'm trying to think how much, how much would evil cultists, how much time would they wind up spending trying to crack the lawful code <laughs> so they could send in spies and assassins and, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that to, you know, it did it, it, it to just say, oh, well, your alignment changed and you can no longer, you're no longer vibing with this person. And, but here are the, the other people that all of a sudden you feel a connection to. Well, if, you well, that's call it, if you just want to call yeah, it metaphysical and say, that's what it is. That's fine. We'll go with that trope. But I think that's one of those things you need to establish up front. This is the way this world works. Right. It's well, just weird, right. magical, and that's how it is. Yeah, we're going to throw it to Carl because he's getting ready to leave. And I know he has thoughts on this. But I will say, if you haven't listened to that alignment um, episode, go listen to it. And there's a, a link in that episode. I'll put it in this episode, too. Daniel Norton did a YouTube video talking about alignment language and talking about the way it's used in, in a book series where – it's actually because you have like gods of law and gods of chaos. When characters do veer from one to the other, the gods actually impart that knowledge, the language in their mind, and they strip it away. So that's where some of that comes from. But Carl, all yeah, because if you make it a language, right? So say you, you happen to run through um, spoiler module X and you find a helm of alignment changing, and you're, you know, you change your alignment. If it, you make it an act codified as a language, then that person still knows that doesn't go away. That person still knows the language. And now maybe they want to destroy like what they had previously held, held fast. They become that, that spy. You know, I think it's a good idea to have it an actual language. I think it's interesting. I don't know if I buy into like what Jason described. I know it's, there's a, a I guess a, a, was a precedent in the literature for something like that. But I don't know if I buy into that sort of metaphysical, it's stripped away. You don't know it anymore. Um, right. But, well, D and D it's not because D and D assassins can learn alignment languages. Oh, so there you go. Yeah. Oh, okay. But, yeah. There you but, go. But, but go ahead. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want to clear that. No, I think, I think that's kind of all that I had to say about that. And, um, you know, I think, um, I think if we were to play ponies, then, um, you know, we'd have to dis- determine in session zero whether or not 
you can use a pony mark because if not, um, Pink Phantom's going to be kind of mad. Well, that's going to be up to the. I, I don't know what what's the GM is it the Pony Master? I don't know what the GM's called in the. We'll I don't know school. the stable we'll, the stable master. What that be yeah, maybe? Weird. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll have to get Jules head, back on. <laughs> the head furrier. No, ponies have do ponies have have a uh, have horseshoes? Hmm. I think they do. Right? Yeah. They. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I mean, assume he could. Horseshoes well, yeah, might not need. To yeah, they would. They, they oh, no opposable thumbs. So who puts them on? The, oh, the ponies I, I are ponies are yeah. a slave state. They have humans to put on horseshoes for themselves. Yeah, I, I, I be like it. the what, what's the place in Gulliver's Travels that you know where it'd be the most noble place, but this, he's really just describing horses. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did, did did you have something, BJ? I saw, I saw your hand. Yeah, I, I was going to say uh, we 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 wound up. We we're playing uh, Wednesday. We we're playing Lost City. We kind of wound into that first. We encounter a faction. We're trying to figure out how how the characters are received and we start talking about alignments. It's like, well, are we going to betray him? Are we going to, and, uh, it would have been really easy to just say, I start speaking in lawful and they go, Oh, ah, you know, but we weren't using alignment languages. Um, so it, it, do people of a like alignment have an instinctual recognition of this? I, we've had a casual conversation and you made a couple of comments about where you're from or what you think. And I get the sense that you and I kind of have the same outlook. Do you want to do it that way, or um, that, that's one way to do it? But uh, after that, I had an interesting idea that uh, I, I ran by Carl and Arlen this morning. Uh, was what if you're maybe not like potions and scrolls and stuff? But what if you're kind of wielded magic items like your, your magic weapons, shields, armor, things like that? What if the, they're infused with a magic that has an alignment, and so it becomes kind of like the DCC thing where magic depending on how closely aligned you are with the magic there's more benefit there's less benefit or there may be a, a barrier to that so i've got a plus one you know i've got a, i've got a plus one lawful sword magic sword so a lawful person it's a plus one sword a neutral person it's a sword a, a chaotic person it acts like a cursed item and they have a penalty when they try to use it would that be a way to sort of reinforce players thinking about their alignment and acting in terms of their alignment because you know, you maybe could do that at first, second level, but once they start accumulating those items, it's like, yeah, you're the plus one armor you got is getting kind of itchy because it doesn't like the fact that you just tried to screw that merchant out of some 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 of the some of their earnings, you know. Right. I, I like that idea a lot. I, I also <laughs> like the idea. Well, of course, with intelligent swords, they're gonna be jealous. They're not gonna want you to have other intelligent they're not gonna want you yeah. have other what magic. Yeah, I wouldn't be intelligent, it'd just be that. <laughs> but that yeah, yeah. No, I like the, I because I'm in the idea that although it doesn't work in your standard high fantasy D and D game per se, but I like magic items to be a little more rare and a little more unique, and, and the idea of them being fused with, you know, you know, law or chaos or whatever, I think is a neat idea. Um, but well, but even, I, I I don't know if it works in D and it could work in D and D. Go go ahead, Arlen. Well, I didn't I, cut you off. And even in different, um, you know, to go to some of the literature, right? Like part of the reason that the certain elven swords glow in the presence of, of orcs in Lord of the Rings has to do with like the idea of the sort of specific history of those weapons and the, the kind of um, magics that were used in their creation and the kind of deep, for lack of a better term, kind of ancestral hatred between uh, the elves and the orcs because of being enemies for so, so long and all that. And I think that's a kind of 
you know, what would happen if an orc picked up like Sting or Glamdring or Orcrist? I know in uh, uh, the, I don't think in the Lord of the Rings there's any of that. I think in the Hobbit movie, there's at least one sequence where, um, what's his name? The white orc picks up Orcrist maybe, but there, I don't think there's anything that happens with that. But that would be kind of an interesting idea of not even necessarily, I mean, to, to kind of move away from just alignment, but like a, a sword that is magical. And once you get to that kind of level of magic, not even necessarily kind of, you know, sapient, uh, I guess, not, not able to like whisper its will to you or something like that, but able to kind of influence its use. Right. That like, you know, it seems to me that that's often related to the idea of like, like if you have a plus one sword, but it's actually a plus three sword when you fight a specific enemy, right. That, that means that's a weapon that has some kind of special nature with regard to a particular. That's cool. It's a great idea. Right. And I think you can do stuff with that. I also think to go back to uh, alignment itself. So um, I think there's a number of kind of ways you could take it. One of my kind of thoughts of taking it, and it depends a lot, I think, on the nature of your world, um, because I think one of the kind of core issues for me has to do with how do you actually access an alignment language? How do you get it, basically? Is it like, is it enough to just be like a lawful person in general, and then you can you know, speak lawful, or is it the sort of thing where you have to like pledge your allegiance to the lords of law and like, you know, like Elric going to a different realm to pledge his, his service to them and ask them to come help out that sort of thing. Is that kind of what goes on? I think it would be interesting um, to use a kind of real world example. Uh, a lot of our different kind of fields of knowledge have uh, names from, from Greek and Latin roots. Um, and obviously one of the classic ones is the ology roots, right? So you have like biology, which is different than geometry, right? Geometry uses uh, geometry versus geology, right? Geometry is the measurement of the earth, whereas geology is often translated as the study of the earth. But the, the ology root comes from the Greek word logos, which is translated as many, many different things, um, most famously in the Gospel of John, right? It's the, the first word in the Greek um, original version of, of the Gospel of John in the New Testament is uh, the word, right? In the beginning, there was the word, and that word is logos. And part of that has to do with, uh, not to offend anyone who who is really interested in, in kind of religious beliefs, but it seems to me that part of that has to do with the specific history of that word within Greek, because you wouldn't say that in Hebrew or Aramaic, because often their kind of use of those words has something fairly different. Whereas in Greek, there's a, a really interesting, right? The history of the word logos also goes back to like Socrates and this idea of, of Platonic and Aristotelian logic. Um, and therefore, one way you could translate biology is not just the study of life, but as the uh, linguistic expression of life. And I think that would be an interesting way to approach linguistic um, alignment is this idea that it's sort of this um, kind of like kind of like learning a language right and in it but in a sort of uh, almost like in a sort of philosophical right philosophical philos and Sophia being the love of wisdom not like the love of like philologia is different than philosophia yeah. right um, but the the idea being that it's, it's this sort of I think it would be interesting to approach it as this kind of um, 
almost like the way we imagine like a, a medieval philosopher, theologian, or, you know, the monk in their, you know, darkened room writing over and, and pouring over these ancient texts and all that sort of stuff as something somehow like deeply related to the nature of kind of alignment language that it's, it's this kind of like to go back to this idea of it being something that is sort of a, a shared ability to communicate that is not just on the level of the specific vocabulary used, but also has to do with like word patterns, things like that, that it's almost like the way that a, um, you know, that the technical jargon within a particular field of study gets applied, right? The way that, <laughs> right, one of the, the classic jokes, you know, uh, to find out the difference between a chemist and a plumber, ask them to pronounce, um, unionized or unionized right because it's spelled the same way in english but it, <laughs> right right it, it's a it's a totally different word in the sense that it, it's totally based on what you see as the person and the joke being that right that the plumber sees unionized and the chemist sees unionized and i think that's a an interesting way to approach it right is that you could have this yeah yeah, yeah. No, totally and but i carl's got to hop off so, Carl, do you have anything before you leave? I want to give you a chance to. Yeah, since you're an actual biologist, you should probably comment on. On what ology? Yeah, I ology. definitely think it's kind of funny, right? Because we, you know, people in um, in science have their own lingo or their own jargon. I guess jargon is probably. Mm -hmm. And right to right, you're always taught or trained, maybe like when you're trying to talk to people outside your field, how to best communicate it. So. But that's just pretty interesting. I guess it could be, like you said, jargon, jargon, the way people talk. Uh, again, it goes back to, you know, it goes back to like, are you going to treat it as a language or some sort of metaphysical reality? I think right. we're, we're, in alignment languages. Yeah, and that'll be a set. That's not even a session zero. That's a GM when they're designing the campaign, a GM <laughs> decision, that, really. That's an interesting thing because I bet if Carl and I could have conversations and if he got too steeped in, in you know, like microbiology, I'd be like, you lost me, dude. And if I get too steeped in psychology, you'd be like, you lost me. But at some level, there's a scientific foundation for both where we can, we can, there's some jargon we can share and other people will be like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess if we're like both worship lawful deities, we could talk to up to a point and then when you get to the actual, you know, rituals and mysteries, mysteries mm -hmm. then we don't we have no idea what we're talking about, but that's kind of funny. Well, that would be, it's kind of an interesting. The new, the new alignment for your, your Gamma World game, Science. Well, or uh, thinking about the way that um, religion is often treated in a lot of D&D games, that it's kind of interesting that, you know, often there are like secret evil cults, but there don't seem to be, at least in my knowledge, a whole lot of like kind of mystery cults in the sense, the way that the real world had, you know, you talk about like the cult of Mithras, right? Mithras in practice, it involved a whole like special ritual that you had to be initiated into the cult and they like sacrifice a bull and pour the blood over you and right because Mithras sacrifices the bull and creates the universe out of that and there, there's all sorts of like specific symbolism but part of it is you're not allowed to talk to anybody outside right it's like fight club right you're not allowed to talk about fight club except that you have to talk about fight club a little bit to bring anybody into the, the uh, people club. but mm -hmm. the, it's kind of an interesting thing that you know there's the right like you know the the lawful good deity almost always has like a a temple and we're open for business we sell healing potions and also a little bit of missionary work on the side um that there's not a lot of that kind of sort of uh the, the sort of secretive mystical version at least in my knowledge and i 
I fully embrace that I'm not an expert in the history of D&D worlds or anything like that. So it may be that I'm totally mistaken about that, but it seems like that's that's my impression, at least. Thank, thanks for the plug, Arlen. That's actually what my next Arcane A one is, is going to be about. <laughs> nice. Okay, so, so we don't want to... Mystery cults. Yeah. yeah. So, not necessarily, but a little bit about the screwy way D&D treats religion. And doesn't yeah, yeah it's, it's basically like a shop for health potions in a lot of uh yeah, yeah it's like well you know sort of but i mean there's other stuff that people do in temples historically right yeah just just it's a worship of the caduceus and they got you know healing for sale yeah right. well well that sounds like a good place to, to wrap it up then so so thank you gentlemen for joining the panel i really appreciate answering these calls we had some interesting conversations on the side folks if this end part was maybe you felt like it was over your head, and but you're still interested in Greek. Go watch my big fat Greek wedding, and they'll tell you how all words are based, you know, in Greek. So you, you'll be able to catch that. And we will be back for a future discussion uh, in the future. Yeah, uh, Carl, anything to plug? Um, go listen to the Geomologist Presents podcast. It's pretty good. It's still alive despite the anchor apocalypse and a lot of work and life related. Uh, things getting in the way of putting another episode out, but one should be out soon. Uh, it, I promise many unboxings, uh, maybe some reviews. I actually figured, I actually also found out because I want to expand my empire or barony, whatever we're calling it. I do have a YouTube channel, but it doesn't have any content yet. Well, it has some content in the, in the wings that I could put out as a previews, but I probably will start putting things on YouTube. I, um, so uh, I'll let you know. Um, I want to do a blog too of some sort. Maybe it might be about food. It might be about gaming, but um, either he, listen here or any of these guys' podcasts because I'm sure I'll try to plug it there too. <laughs> so but there you go. That's for me. There you go. So watch out, podcasters. You're about to get unsolicited plugs from Carl. BJ, mm-hmm. anything to plug? Uh, just, you know, yeah, I've survived the apocalypse um, for Anchor. Keep, uh, we appreciate anybody out there who listens and always eager to hear calls, get emails, things like that. So um, I just want to mention, I, I said this in chat and it didn't get said out loud. So I was going to ask if, if the alignments become a fields of study, does that mean we're dealing not with law versus chaos, but axiomology versus anthropology? I have a dad joke, but there's some more play for the episode. <laughs> there we go. Um, as far as that goes, the anchor apocalypse goes, folks, you can, I'm, we're going to give Arlen his plugs here in a second, but, just to answer that, the you can either go to the website for the Cerebrivore. You can go to your email account and send an email to Cerebrivore at gmail.com. Or there's a speak pipe for Cerebrivore as well. So And, and that's all linked in the show notes. So you'll be able to do, deal with that. Um, there's... Anyway, go to the show notes and you'll see all the ways you can leave us messages and reach out to us. You can also, of course, leave comments on the youtube channel with, with the youtube video but that said now i'm going to go to arlen so he can give us his plugs and we'll close the show out um plugs for me uh live from poems wasteland is uh still alive but it's a little bit like the emperor in 40k where i need to sacrifice a couple billion psychers to keep it alive um <laughs> no in all seriousness I, I haven't posted very much recently um i'm planning on posting more but you should go i mean listen to more cerebrivore um, everybody else on here has great podcasts that post much more regularly than I do nowadays. 
Um, so check their stuff out and uh, yeah, play uh, play some Pendragon because the sixth edition second quick start came out recently. So you can play not one, but two adventures for free. There we go. Pendragon's a great game. Check that out, folks. Okay. Yeah. I think that's all we have. So take care and we'll talk to you next time. Are, are we going to try to do stuff for OSR October kind of thing? Uh, putting a positive sk- sk- spin on OSR stuff, not trash talking things, but trying to point out positive things. I don't know. I, I have a lot of trouble being positive, to be honest. I think I'm done with positivity. I'm I'm just going to embrace negativity on my my own podcast and on all my podcast appearances. Let the, hate, let the hate flow through you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>